2: We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com.
0: Christy Shriver.
2: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Last week we finished our discussion of the famous Shelley Power couple, Mary and Percy. We discussed their turbulent lives and remarkable work. Today we change both continents and genres and we discuss a work that has been called sentimental by critics, but a work that has also become a go to over the last 100 years. For those looking for a place of peace during chaotic times, it's not divisive, it's not edgy, it's not socially cultural progressive, but that is not to say it is not deep nor challenging. It just provokes us in a different way and in a personal way, in his own way, the man who can confront us non-confrontationally, of course I'm talking about Thornton Wilder, the American, and his great experimental play, Our Town.
0: This play is the most produced American play on planet Earth. I was stunned to see the numbers when I looked up You know how often this play is performed. Over 400 performances a year. That's more than there are days. I will say that they're almost all amateur, which is surprising when you think about what is happening or really what doesn't happen in the play. There are no, get ready, no Transformers. No superheroes, no explosions, no sex, nothing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's worse than that. There's not even a set, hardly any costumes, uh, not much of a plot, yet there have been over 4,000 productions in the last decade alone of this play.
0: I know. They say, and of course this doesn't count pandemic times because that doesn't count for anything, but... On a usual year, there is never one night when our town is not being performed somewhere on the globe. To me, that's crazy. It's had a remarkable role in the lives of countless people. And, you know, when I look at the way that it's been used, it's the go-to play when the world needs to remember that we are actually good people here on planet Earth and We're friends, even though sometimes you can't tell that from what you see on TV. It was performed at the Royal Exchange in Manchester, England, after that horrific, violent episode at the Ariana Grande concert in uh, 2017. It was the place Scarlett Johansson chose when she gathered the cast of Avengers to raise funds for the construction, or really the reconstruction, of Puerto Rico after their devastating hurricane. It's been used actually a lot of times over the years to calm people down, especially during political seasons that are especially divisive. It's performed regularly. I mean, regularly, year after year by teenagers in high schools all over the world. It's performed in multiple languages. And I think it's cool that it's even been performed in American Sign Language, which would be really interesting to see if you ever had the opportunity It's been performed by actors of all religions, ethnicities, and ages, and sometimes, and I've heard some of these on YouTube, when you hear people talk about plays that impacted them from their youth, things that were meaningful to them back in high school, this play comes up, which is unusual because essentially it's a play about mortality, and you don't consider, you don't even think about high schoolers even being biologically wired to think about mortality. <laughs> True.
2: Uh, in a practical sense, it's not surprising that it's extremely popular in high schools. I can't think of a single school around here who hasn't performed it. And you know, as a person who has been in the orchestra pit in many high school performances, um, executing a high school performance of anything is no small feat. But in terms of execution, this one is more simple than, say, like Guys and Dolls or Beauty and the Beast. First of all, there's a lot of flexibility with the number of characters you have to have. I saw that there was one production group that did it with just seven, and the Broadway version used 50. So for a high school drama teacher, that's helpful. There's no dancing and not a whole lot of singing, and there's not much of a setting or costuming, so that means that schools with low budgets can afford to perform it. There's no fancy makeup. This play can be done, and it can be done really well, no matter your financial or personal limitations. All it takes is some polished acting, and you can still do a really fine production of this play, which is nice. Another really big thing that drama teachers really talk about being an asset, although you may not think of it this way at first because of its unusual style, actually has been over the years, the idea that this particular play is an exceptional good teaching tool for teachers to examine with students and instruct them in the basic elements of the theater experience. I mean, what is the role of each element of theater? How is the stage different than the novel? These differences are kind of highlighted one at a time. By the stage manager over the course of the play and even the basic idea of the fourth wall and what it means to break it is very clearly illustrated in this play
0: and i really think wilder was going for that i know he would be satisfied or feel satisfied if he could have uh, seen what all's happened to it Uh, there are a lot of written letters where he expressed frustration Uh, because he had these ideas of what he thought the theater should be and what he thought it was turning into. He attended lots of plays and he found most of them to be boring. He really believed that there was too much attention being given to the creation of all these amazing sets and opulent costumes and that was nice but the written word or the spoken word really was being overlooked And he considered that to be what the heart of the theater experience was supposed to be. I think he probably would say the same thing about a lot of major movies today if he were to see them. He would definitely fall into that camp. I think that would say that we have too many car chases and too many explosions and too little attention is being given to the language of the play. And we're losing the cleverness and the beauty of what would make the spoken word, you know, speak.
2: Well, uh, I am no Thornton Wilder, but I would agree with that point of view. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, and, but there are those that think that all those extra elements are a good thing.
0: And in a sense, they are. There's no doubt. Uh, but there are many people who uh, would say, How many times can you blow something up? How many times can you stare at a beautiful set? Uh, Wilder really took this approach that. There's magic and power in the word, which interestingly enough is that theological idea we just got through talking about in Ozymandias last week. So for Wilder, you have all this extra stuff. What ultimately happens is you lose the emotion. and You don't just lose the emotion. You lose the connectivity between the artist and the person who's per- watching the performance. You don't get that uh, without this—the word and the human delivery of it, especially, especially when you're talking about live performances, where there's really this energy that goes between the people who are watching it with each other and the people on the stage. And so he really wanted to prove his point, and so he stripped everything down. He took it all away, and remarkably, the success of Our Town. May prove he had something going on. <laughs> um,
2: I'm going to go out on a limb and say it definitely proved it. Definitely demonstrated he hit the point. Uh, he did what he set out to do. Uh, so should we do what we always do for jumping into the play itself? Shall we take a look at this visionary man?
0: I think we should. All right. I want to say I really, really like this guy. I have a lot of personal affinity. Uh, for him as a person. And he was kind of a particularly private and kind of unusual person.
2: Uh, Well, I mean, I can see why it appeals to you. Uh, The two of you have a lot in common. I mean, although he and I have a few things in common, more so you. He was originally a Midwestern man, like myself. For those who don't know, I was born and raised in a small town about 30 miles north of Kansas City, Missouri. Thornton Wilder, who was born Thornton Niven Wilder was born in Madison, Wisconsin, which really is still a seven-hour car ride from my hometown. But culturally, our worlds were relatively similar, um, albeit he was born in 1897, and I was born just a couple of years after that.
0: <laughs> well, I know this is a tangent, but do you think Thornton Wilder would have been a Kansas City Chiefs fan? <laughs>
2: Well, hmm, uh, there's a couple of obstacles. Uh, first of all, being from Wisconsin, the Green Bay Packers are only about three hours away from Madison. And and they have a pretty loyal following and always have. But the larger problem may be that professional football didn't even exist in, oh. until 1920.
0: Oops! <laughs> so we're
2: really jumping into some crazy <laughs> hypotheticals, which uh. you love. But the truth is, even if football had existed in his growing up years, by the time Thornton was nine years old, his family had moved to Hong Kong because his father was appointed counsel for the U.S. government. So, hypothetically speaking, as you like to get into such things, uh, if he'd been a sports fan and there's nothing that I saw indicating he was, he probably would have been into Major League Soccer or perhaps Cricket.
0: <laughs> well, maybe the time problem would have been an issue. But uh, at this point... Where he and I have something in common, even though I've never been to Hong Kong, is the idea that he was raised basically an expat. And of course, I think I've talked about this before. My parents didn't work for the government, but they were missionaries during my growing up years. And we moved around a lot, all the way until I went to college. And so I kind of really get uh, what he seems to portray throughout the whole, his whole life. He has this restless wonderlust And... Uh, I really think it's due to a lot of the uh, moving around that he did as a kid, Uh, because I know I feel that I attended 10 different schools and lived on three different continents by the time I was 17. And when you look at him, he really did a lot of these same kinds of things. If you look at after he left Wisconsin, when he moved to Hong Kong, he attended a German school there. But then he was sent back to the United States and he attended a boarding school in Berkeley, California. And then he went back to China. But this time, instead of going to the German school, he attended an English mission boarding school. And then he goes back to California and eventually graduates from Berkeley High School. And then after that, he's going to go to a small liberal arts college, Oberlin, finally finishing up. Although he, I say he does finish well at Yale. Fancy Schrancy Yale, just like his father, by the way. So, here's my point all that moving around, he has a lot of different worldviews going on that he's exposed to. Uh, And this is really, I think, going to change a lot of the way that he looks at the world and a lot of different things that he writes. None of his things, by the way, that he writes are ever set in any of the same place. You see this in a lot of authors always setting their place like Faulkner in the South or in the same kinds of places. He doesn't do that. Every one of his books or stories or plays are written in different places. Uh, And he does have this different worldview in every single one of them. But back to his life, uh, he starts all this really in college. He starts writing for literary magazines. and, And then, of course, he graduates from Yale in 1921. So 1921, Gary... What's the world looking like in nineteen twenty one if you're young little Thornton popping out of <laughs> Yale and popping over to Rome, which is what he ends up doing?
2: So much going on. But before I jump into that I wanna make a note about our experiences and just to clarify, yes, you had the, the world travel experience. I had the I grew up in a town of fifteen hundred people, went to the same school, kindergarten through twelfth grade. My life is in this place. <laughs>
0: But our lives are in this play. They,
2: they are. And, you know, what I find boring about my experience, you find exciting. What I, you find boring about your experience, I find exciting. So I think that's interesting. But anyway, getting back to what's going on in the world in 1921. Uh, first of all, he's born in 1897. So let's back up there. I mean, the United States is an emerging world power. Teddy Roosevelt. Has become a prominent reform politician, and he's reshaping the role of government. Uh, we're an emerging industrial power. We, um, for the first time in U.S. history, we're an imperial power. Uh, since 1815, the U.S. had really diligently tried to stay out of foreign affairs, and by 1916, we will be heading towards World War One. So, uh, that's the ultimate antithesis of our past history with Europe. But the point of all that is. We had 100 years of staying home from 1815 to 1916, and during Thornton Wilder's time period, that's ending. We're emerging. We're becoming a world power. We're becoming an industrial power. We've left being that nation of yeoman farmers that Jefferson dreamed of. Now we're becoming a nation of city dwellers and factory workers by his time period.
0: Well, of course, Wilder was involved in all that. I will say he, like a lot of the other men during World War I, did try to serve his country and enlist. But poor thing, he was rejected because he had bad uh, eyesight. Anyway, uh, so he didn't get involved in some of those political things that you talked about uh, going on in Europe and America at the time. When we look at Wilder's life as an adult, we don't see a lot of those things going on. He's not like Orwell, that's jumping into an involvement in the Spanish War or anything like that. But he does never stop traveling, and he goes uh, from place to place, lots of places in Europe, and he expresses this restlessness of spirit that a lot of us feel who are kind of raised on the, on the road, so to speak, and really rootless. He spends a year as a resident in Rome He's going to teach French in New Jersey. He goes back to Europe, but again, not as a soldier or anything like that. What he's doing in all this time is writing, 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 and really getting better, better, and better. In 1927, he's going to publish his breakout novel titled The Bridge of San Luis Rey. And that's, it struck gold. It was a bestseller, it made him rich and famous. By the time it won the Pulitzer Prize, which it did win one year after it was uh, after it came out, it had already gone through seventeen printings and had sold over three hundred thousand copies. Now, in the age of the internet, we expect everything to be in the millions and gazillions, but that's a lot, especially back then.
2: It is, and I want to point out he's producing these works in the nineteen twenties, the wealthiest decade in U.S. history up to that point, and. A lot of social change going on, a lot of other famous writers in that time period, too. Um, But by 1958, he'd sold two million, so he got a lot of mileage out of that book. But it seems it wasn't for another 10 years that he actually duplicates that incredible public success, and that comes with the play Our Town. It's also, um, I mean, a real distinction that he is the only writer to win a Pulitzer for writing both a novel and then a play.
0: That's right. And uh, although unlike The Bridge of San Luis Rey, he didn't really know that this particular play was going to be successful right off the bat. In fact, it actually wasn't. It was first performed in Boston, and the reviews were so bad that they canceled it. (laughs) But Mm. fortunately, it was relaunched in New York. There's some different circumstances that uh, played into that. And this time, the success was instant. It sold out. People were lining up to buy tickets. It was incredible. And it's one of those things that was amazing even to him at the time. And he started making money again. That's always good. <laughs> uh, always.
2: Uh, you know, of course, although lots of people enjoyed it. I mean, I read several good reasons why a lot of people like it. But remember, this play is first performed in 1938. We finished World War I. We're in a depression Hitler's ransacking Europe, the Spanish Civil War is devastating the country of Spain, and never mind mind the turmoil in the Far East. Uh, Yet this play is not talking about any of that. It wasn't addressing social or contemporary changes. It was addressing who we are at that moment in time. It was addressing our national psychology. And lots of people thought there were social issues that needed to be addressed.
0: Right, and that's what a lot of contemporary works were trying really to do. But Wilder, interesting enough, looked at life and history with a much longer perspective. It's really interesting. He kind of looked at it like on an evolutionary scale from antiquity and perhaps beyond. And I love what Wilder himself had to say about this. I think it's really critical to understand his perspective so you kind of get the play because if you just watch it you might be confused but he says this and this is so funny when they're talking all these critics are criticizing him he's not speaking about social issues he's not talking about today and he says this that's one of the troubles with the left-wingers they think all literature all life all commence somewhere around 1900 when they began. In other words, you can't get out of your moment. <laughs>
2: Historically, for the one million time on this podcast, we call that the arrogance of the present.
0: Well, we all have it, except him. Clearly, he doesn't. Uh, he, he's going to expound on this later in another letter when he's talking about what he thought the theater should do. And he says this. Every action which, which has ever taken place, every thought, every emotion has taken place only once. At one moment in time and place, every person who has ever lived has lived an unbroken succession of unique occasions. Yet, the more one is aware of this individuality and experience, the more one becomes attentive to what these disparate moments have in common. The repetitive patterns, that truth, do you prefer that of the isolated occasion or that which includes and resumes the innumerable. The theater is admirably fitted to tell both truths. So in other words, he was more interested in things that happened over and over and over again instead of things that would happen once in in a millennium.
2: So we're back at the same idea that Lorraine Hansberry discusses, and we talked about that with Raisin in the Sun, finding the universal and the particular Or better, finding ourselves and perhaps our common human experiences in the lives of the people on the stage, no matter the setting or no matter the time or the place.
0: Well, that's it exactly. In Wilder's words, again, he says, I am searching for a new form in which there will be a perpetual counterpoint between the detailed episode of daily life, the meal, the chat, the courtship, and the funeral, and the ever-present references to geological time and the distant future for the millions who have repeated these moments. What an unusual thought.
2: Oh, it's it's amazing. And I don't know how that could be considered sentimental or simple. I mean, to me, it sounds very Jungian.
0: Uh, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, going back to Carl Jung, who we talked about many times, um, he was a psychodynamic psychologist, and he minted the idea of the collective unconscious. In other words, uh, his idea was the shared experiences that every human has had in every time period and every culture, th- that really common thread that exists for just being human.
0: And that's really what Wilder wanted to emphasize, not just in this piece, but in a lot of his pieces. And it's not simple. It's only simple. This play can only be thought of as simple if you thoughtlessly Watch this play. If
2: you miss the whole point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can do that. I mean, you can be on your Zoom, shopping on your phone, doing a crossword puzzle. I mean, that's kind of how I watch a lot of things. And I, I mean, I'm, we're all guilty of multitasking like that. But that's not how you're supposed to take in this play. You'll completely miss it. You're, Of course, back to this idea, you should never um, confuse simplicity and form with simplicity of idea. And he has created a very simple form with a complex idea.
2: He just created one of the most enormous contrasts between those two ideas ever. (laughs) For sure. And so, you know, Wilder wrote this play from three very different corners of the globe. I mean, he wrote part of it in St. Lucia, some of it from New Hampshire, uh, but for the most part, while he was living in various places in Switzerland, and you know, although it seems he was writing three plays at this time, uh, to the frustration of his publishers, when he got back to the States, his editor snatched him off the boat, sent him to Long Island, and basically put him in time out until he finished writing.
0: <laughs> they needed it. Yes. Well, it seems to me that he wrote it staring at life. And he can do that because he's in all these different places, but he's always the outsider. That's who he is. He doesn't have a lot of personal connections. Thornton Wilder never even had a life partner, really. He had lots of friends, but he was always moving around, and he maintained almost all of his relationships with letters, which is kind of nice because we have a lot of them. In this play, though, what he's going to try to do is he's going to make all of us outsiders. And those of us who understand this rootless connection of being in a community, but not feeling that you're of this community, you can identify with that fairly quickly. But even people like you, Gary, who lived in a place that had roots, what he wants to do is yank up those roots from you, set you down on this stage as a stage manager in a fictional community. That is not your community, but it's an awful lot like your community wherever or whatever your community looks like. So when you are taken out of time and place of your particular place and you're set in Grover's Corner, which is his little town that he made up, you get to think about that. You get to think about what is this place? What is it really? What's this experience of life that they're having, that I've had, that I'm having now? What does it all mean? What does it mean for them? What does it mean for me? And lots of authors write these, a lot of poets write these kinds of questions. But interestingly enough, especially during his life, lots of the answers that you were getting from writers, especially after World War I, were dark and existential, you know, Oh, where's the meaning of life? Oh, it doesn't it's the mean anything. Of postmodernism. Yes. Well, he doesn't go that direction at all. He's definitely not in the God is dead camp. In fact, he's going to kind of go the very opposite direction because he's going to say when you strip life down, when you really look at it from the outside, what you're going to find is that it's meaningful, it's infinitely meaningful.
2: Well, and how does he do this? I mean, it's clever. I mean, he starts to play with nothing on stage except two ladders and a few pieces of furniture.
0: I know. Uh, to me, honestly, it's very European and it's modern in the sense, like, I don't mean like contemporary, I mean modern, uh, is that, that kind of, that modern movement that was going on during his life. You think about modern artists, think about Picasso. We all know Picasso was a very... Uh, talented painting he could paint anything realistically but he didn't want to do that he wasn't trying to paint realistically he wanted you to see things uh from a perspective about a year and a half ago i went to madrid and i got to see one of my favorite picasso pieces guernica it's really famous i know most of you have probably seen it if you haven't pull it up on your phone Uh, And incidentally, by the way, Guernica came out the same year that our town came out. But the differences were very, very, well, the circumstances, let me say, were very, very different. The things that made Guernica come out were horrific. But anyway, when you go to see that painting today, it's very abstract. And you, you don't really know what you're looking at. But when you walk through the room, there's just one painting in the room. It's huge. And it's the only thing in there. You don't see people crowding around like they do when they go see the Mona Lisa. Because when you go see the Mona Lisa, everyone's shoving each other. You're trying to <laughs> knock over the old woman with the with the purse so you can get the selfie. <laughs> I
2: have experienced it's that. It's so horrible. And, and I've participated in it myself. Everybody
0: has. But when you go see Guernica, no one does that. There's reverence in the room. It's solemn and quiet. Everyone's staring, meditating. It's almost haunting. When I saw it, I was truly affected and I'm not really an art person and I'm not Spanish and I've never been to Guernica and I don't understand a lot of the things about the Spanish War, but in that room with all those different people looking at that painting, you feel this common humanity and it's Picasso's simplicity that brings that there. So although the emotions of these two pieces are very, very different this is the same technique. One is on the stage and one is on the canvas. It's little pieces of of different things that you're spreading out all over the stage or the canvas and they all speak individually. But when you put all the little pieces together, you have a cohesive picture. So what do we see in the play? We see a little boy playing with a baseball and the stage manager tells you he's gonna die, and you see Simon Stinson, the drunk choir director, yelling at the women in the church choir for their poor tone, which makes you laugh. But at the same time, this isn't a slapstick character. He's a sympathetic character. He's tortured, and you know that guy. He lives in your town, you've met him. So, how do you read this play? Well, I don't say that about, I don't say this about everything but I do say it about our town. You have to watch it twice. you just <laughs> have to
2: <laughs> I, I'm living proof You
0: can't get it on a first pass. So what you need to do is just watch the whole thing. My favorite rendition by the way is the one with Paul Newman playing the stage manager but there's so many I don't I can't even tell you if that's really the best one but that's the best one that I've seen. So after you watch it once, then you can either read it, Or you can think about it and watch it again. And then on the second pass, after you get the double dose, you'll get it, I think.
2: Hmm. Okay. So uh, let's at least break down the setup. Um, Although the stage manager will do that for us pretty quickly, the first act is called daily life. But when you see it the first time, you have no idea what you're supposed to be noticing. I can tell you that. You see these two families, and they seem plain enough. Nothing seems to really happen. I mean, they're breaking beans. There's a milkman. There's a newspaper editor and his wife, and there's a doctor. Kids are doing homework. One kid gets in trouble. There seems to be no storyline. Then you get in the second act called Love and Marriage, and you're kind of charmed. I mean, (laughs) Emily is every girl who ever lived worrying if she's pretty enough, and George is the clueless jock with the good heart. <laughs> the wedding scene, uh, it's emotional and funny. And then you get into Act 3, which is all about death. I mean, it's it's abrupt. And all the characters that, that were just at this wedding are now dead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, and when you watch it, well, you know this. You watch me watch it. When I get to Act 3, I find myself crying. And I don't really know why, because it's not really sad. But then... You feel emotion and you go back and you have to think, how did this man get in my head? (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) And that's the genius of his writing. So should we open act one?
0: Let's do it. Let's go to Grover's Corner. If you're looking at a paper copy of the book, what you're going to see is says this. No curtain, no scenery. The audience arriving sees an empty stage in half-light. So there you go. (laughs)
2: Yeah, when we watched this the other night, uh, I didn't know that the play had actually started. Uh, I thought it was actually a real stage manager talking. So I would have been one of the clueless people at the theater.
0: Well, it catches you off guard. This play opens up by already uh, breaking the fourth wall.
2: Yeah, let me take a moment to explain what the fourth wall is. That's where uh, actors on stage are in character as if they're living a life not paying attention to the audience. And then every once in a while, the actor, when he breaks the fourth wall, will look at the audience and let the audience uh, and, the, and the stage merge for a moment.
0: Right. Uh, and let's just put this in a little bit of a historical context. I know this seems off, but it kind of makes it interesting to me. So Americans as with other forms of art, we're latecomers to writing theater pieces and uh, and all that kind of thing. But up to this point, when you think of up to, well, the history of theater, you have Shakespeare, you have thought, Sophocles, and they have these huge monologues and everything's dramatic and it's about important people like kings and queens. And then theater evolves in Europe and they decide that's not what it's going to be. Theater's going to be realistic. It's going to be about regular people. It's going to be, uh, more subtle and we're going to have sets and it's going to, uh, and even that's how it is today. The things on the stage are supposed to be reflective of what you see in your everyday life. So you go to the play, you see a set. It's realistically set up like to look like somebody's living room and we watch it. The actors pretend that they're real people and we pretend that they don't know that we're watching them and they ignore us. And, uh, that's how the play, the stage world is set up. That's the theater experience. So like you said, when one of the characters breaks the fourth wall and looks at us, it kind of shatters this idea that we're in two different places. Sometimes it can be even awkward for somebody on the stage to look at the theater people and start talking. Although sometimes it's cool. I don't know. Have you ever seen the play Peter Pan and... Tinkerbell dies and they break the fourth wall. This is the first time I ever mm-hmm. remember somebody doing that. And they say, "You got to say, I believe in fairies," and all the kids in the audience say, "I believe in fairies," "I believe in fairies." And then we get enough fairy juice or whatever fairy <laughs> dust to, to 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 relive her. Did you ever watch? I don't know. Is that part of your childhood?
2: <laughs> uh, no, and no, no. <laughs> so. This play is unusual because they don't actually break the fourth wall, and they don't even really erect it to begin with. I mean, there's no facade, that they have a world at all. I mean, a guy comes out and starts talking to us like we just showed up to the empty theater. He calls us things like friends and folks. (laughs) But then things start happening. I mean, a rooster crows, and you realize this is the play. You also realize it's morning.
0: I kind of think I remember you saying that. Oh, it's the play. (laughs) Yeah. And then we get into Wilder being this observer of small town life from the outside. Uh, And for those of us who have ever lived or moved into a small town in America, you really have to smile because he does really draw an accurate picture. When I was in my 30s, I lived in a little town called Wynn, Arkansas, a wonderful place for three years which is unique because Wynn is the city of a smile because you can't say Wynn without smiling, which is like every other small town in America. But what he does is he captures the essence that I felt in Wynn and that he felt in all those New Hampshire towns. Neighbors all know each other. People know the parents and the grandparents of everyone who lives in the community and who whether you like a person or not, you have to deal with them. You're living together, you're community building, and in some sense that's bonding.
2: It's like Lawson also. <laughs> very, very Americana. You also see that Americans are very religious people, um, as most of the people in the world are, but we're very also very sectarian. I mean we're Methodists and Unitarians and Baptists and Congregationalists and Presbyterians and Catholics.
0: I know and he really focuses on that which I think is kind of funny because really those are all the same thing. They're all versions of Christianity but in a small town that's, they're different and we're very serious about these distinctions. And I can imagine coming from China uh, when Wilder sees something like this, he just finds that whole thing fascinating. But As much as it is Americana, it's universal because it's about community and family and faith. It's just one version of it. So through the lens of a small rural community at the turn of the century, the last century, we can see any place. It doesn't feel all that far away. And I think he highlights this through his use of pantomime. So there's not actual Stuff on the stage that represents those, phys- those that era or that time, everything—it's a pantomime. So it's kind of a sketch. The impression is there. It's a strategy that you created in your mind that allows you to make it more than what it would have been if he, you know, made it one specific thing.
2: Right. And, and having said that, you, then you get into the daily lives of all the people in Grover's Corner uh, as it would have been at the turn of the century. And from a historical perspective, he really tries to get it right. Um, The kids are interested in baseball. Milk is being delivered door to door. There's a country doctor coming in from delivering a baby in the middle of the night. It's 5.45 in the morning. He also brings in the big events, the Treaty of Versailles, Lindbergh's flight. I mean, big things and little things. And then all of a sudden, the stage manager emerges to break the fourth wall again. But this time we also break a barrier that, if there's a name for it, I don't know, but we pull out of the story entirely. Like it's a lecture series, there are actors planted in seats all over the theater calling out questions, not just to the stage manager, but actually to the characters who don't respond as actors, but respond as characters. And there's this intellectual back and forth about science and anthropology and things like that.
0: You know, it kind of shows you that Wilder is a man who knows his classics because he's drawing from a very ancient technique that we're familiar with. If you were with us with Antigone and Oedipus, the stage manager is now the chorus, kind of like in the Greek plays. And these voices out in the theater are kind of like chorus members. So they're in the back of the house. They're kind of like the citizens, if you want to think of it like in... Oedipus, and they're asking questions like you would have expected from Sophocles. And in some sense, there's a subtle social criticism that Wilder's making on academia. And it's so typical, it's kind of funny. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I would just like to say that uh, I really appreciate the Greek course. You know, you need somebody to fill in the blanks and say, this is what's happening in case you're missing it. I mean, well, the
0: stage manager does that. Otherwise you would clearly miss almost everything.
2: Right. And there's no doubt that Wilder was a serious student of archeology span and history and geology and all the things represented by Professor Willard. I mean, Willard is so clueless and he's so typical of an out of touch professor.
0: I know he really is. And that's the point. Uh, And it's kind of funny, with all of his study of human history, you know, the stage manager is kind of asking, hmm, do we really know anything about ourselves? Do we get anything significant from all of this study that you're really talking about, Mr. Willard? Although he clearly respects Mr. Willard, uh, he's kind of bringing up the point that there's something in the record that's missing, something that the intellectuals, at least Mr. Willard doesn't even notice that he's missing.
2: Ah, uh, indeed. And I mean we're reminded that everything here on Earth is small, but in it also is bedded something larger that lasts a long time. I mean, like geology.
0: Well there's there's a lot of funny lines in this play, at least to me. And there's this one when this belligerent man screams out, just like you would expect any person screaming out in a town hall, complaining about whatever is there no one in town aware of social injustice and industrial inequality?
2: Nice
0: voice. I know. And then, because, you know, I there's just so many scolds in the world. And he has these scolds. <laughs> there were a,
2: scolds at the turn of the century.
0: <laughs> yes. A woman hollers out wanting to know about culture. This other woman's, you know, scolding about the drinking in the world and... You know, I've been scolded probably more than my fair share. No, I think you've
2: been (laughs) scolded, but not more than your fair share.
0: Well, we're not serious enough, clearly, about social injustice. We're not serious enough about people's morality. We're not serious enough about elevating the culture in our community. And it's not like he's diminishing or dismissing any of those things. He's kind of responding to them. He's saying, settle down. Let's look bigger. And he's going to juxtapose these, you know, social questions with just a few incidents in the daily lives of two families. And whether you realize it or not, he's kind of answering the questions posed by the chorus. And the incidents that he highlights, we're going to see that they have a problem with alcohol abuse. There is social inequality and there's actually even culture of a kind, as he says. But what does that even mean? And how can we improve these things? Actually, my absolute favorite line of this play, and really it's one of my favorite lines in a lot of plays, this, the belligerent man is basically asking him why we don't have a better world and why don't we make a place where good people, you know, well, how, well, how do we make it all work fair? And Mr. Webb is going to say, I guess we're all hunting like everybody else for a way that the diligent and sensible can rise to the top and the lazy and quarrelsome can sink to the bottom, but it ain't easy to find... Which I find particularly true. (laughs) You know, we have so many such, so many political squabbles nowadays, and all of them are trying to do just that. And truly, it ain't easy to find. Well, Mr.
2: (laughs) Webb, he's prophetic, (laughs) indeed. Uh, So there are a lot of one-liners like that that are really catchy. Uh, But I want to get back to this element of time because I think it's unusual. We jump in with Wilder into this time warp. We're living a day and a life in Grover's Corner, but at the same time, he's given us details that fast forward in the future. I mean, at one moment, it's 5.45 a.m., and there's a train, and kids are getting ready for school. But then we're told Dr. Gibbs is dead, and there's a hospital named after him. Then we're back in the day of the life, and it's later on, and we move on, and then it's night. and hmm.
0: It's true. And then you have all these events that happen and you have the choir practice and don't forget they're singing this song, which actually they sing it four times in the play. Bless be the tide that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship, the kindred mind is like to that above. What does it all mean? Why do we sing this song? Why do we have all these jumps in time? We seem to be swimming around in something that's mundane. It's ordinary. Uh, the place is, it's a nice town, you know what I mean? Nobody very remarkable ought to come out of it. So, as far as we know, in some sense, Wilder wants us to think this is just not a very special place. But at the same time, he's making it an epic place. And he's going to say this so that people in those years from now will know a few simple facts about us. So he has to cross time in order to do this. He's kind of building a vertical community. In this sense, we can see that their hearts are bound. The fellowship, it crosses time. But, of course, you can't really put all these pieces together until you get to act for act three. (laughs) As
2: I experienced. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, act one is going to finish up with this little girl named Rebecca Gibbs. And she had gotten a letter. And she's talking about it to her brother because she found it. Very unusual. And she says, This, I never told you about that letter Jane Crawford got from her minister when she was sick. He wrote Jane a letter, and on the envelope, the address was like this it's saying, Jane Crawford, the Crawford Farm, Grover's Corners, Sutton County, New Hampshire, United States of America. And her brother said, What's funny about that? And Rebecca says, But listen, it's not finished. The United States of America, continent of North America, Western Hemisphere, the Earth, the solar system, the universe, the mind of God. That's what it said on the envelope.
2: Hmm. What's it mean?
0: (laughs) Well, we can't know in Act 1. But I think it means think bigger, look smaller, but think bigger. You're so small and the universe is so big, but it says this. I didn't read this line, but the next line, she's going to say this. The postman brought it just the same. In that sense, you might be a speck of the world, but even your speckness is meaningful.
2: Hmm. And then it's going to end with an invitation to smoke. That's (laughs) kind of funny. It reminds you that this was first produced in 1937. That's the end. Act one. End of act one. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to stop there for today. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, if you want to do something constructive and positive with your life, then go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out all the good stuff we have on the website for you. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. Contact us. We enjoy hearing from people. Thanks for being
0: with us. Peace out.